Salam and peace. This is Imam Malik Mujahid and you are listening to our podcast Mujahid Talks. This is the audio version of our daily live show on Galaxy 19 satellite for Muslim Network TV. Texas uh, is a big state uh, remains in the news one way or the other somebody vacationing and somebody freezing to death and um, a week ago monday that is almost uh, it was colder dallas texas was colder than anchorage uh, alaska are these something cyclical or it's extraordinary is it really connected to global warming or uh, that's all uh, a myth uh, some uh, people thriving in the fake news in texas are actually looking for a little bit of global warming laughing about the whole concept and any time uh, extreme weather events like that uh, take place everyone is start talking about climate change for a while so we will talk about uh, talk with experts about it but why texans suffered so much that's the question electricity went out so many water pipes busted so many that they do not have enough plumbers to fix them and uh, some good people from other states are going uh, offering their services to fix a uh, water situation for people at least 20 people have died but they are saying it will take uh, uh, about 60 days or so to actually determine how many people have died and 4 million homes at one point or the other lost uh, power heat or water um, i have a colleague there working for us and uh, initially he thought he is helping others he got four families move into his uh, uh, house only to find out that he ran out of food and there is no one to deliver food uh, well what people can learn from it uh, you know cold temperatures uh, caused electricity outage in texas but uh, just 6 month ago same thing happened in california because of heat this was happening because of the cold temperatures 6 month ago it was happening because of heat so is america going to see more power outages more often in more states is american infrastructure ready for it are you ready for it do you know what to do when these type of things happen we will have two guests uh, one by one the first guest with us is dr jode korn welcome to muslim network tv dr korn oh it's a pleasure to be here thank you uh, dr jode korn is an mit climatologist and a director of seasonal forecasting atmospheric and environmental research uh, whose services are used by our government so did the climate change scientist knew what is going to happen to texas i'd say yes and no um i think the short term forecasts were very good I mean, this was a very extreme event you know the models are better at predicting kind of normal weather than extreme weather but there was um, at least a week in advance notice that Texas was going to see extreme cold and ex- even extreme snowfall I mean I think longer term uh, I myself am focused on the um, time scale beyond 2 weeks we call that subseasonal uh, to seasonal I think uh, and on this longer time scales you know the the models didn't do such a good job and uh you know I'm not in the um policy or you know public works domain I don't you know I I I I am told for preparation they would like uh you know advance warning of at least 2 weeks or longer I don't know that the Texas you know kind of got got that kind of warning but um but you yourself were able to say that texas might get it in a big way well i thought the us i said you know to be clear even in uh Jan- i write a weather blog every week even as soon as Jan- january 25th i was highlighting mid february i said you know this is a period we need to watch there's an elevated risk of severe winter weather for the us and i said europe as well um i didn't you know i didn't give specifically say texas and then 
Um, even a few days later, I said, you know, this, you know, really it looks to be ex an exceptional period um, of, of, of risk for severe winter weather in the U.S. in mid-February. When, when the miles were still at that point, I think, predicting a quite a mild February, actually. Um, so I think I gave advanced... But there were long-term models which were pre predicting something different. But yeah. the short-term observation told you that it is. Uh, what was that observation which caused you to uh, issue a a blog about almost uh, fifteen to twenty days before? So uh, I wrote a paper three years ago, you know, co you know, first author, a few of us, um, where we showed that there's a very strong relationship. Um, a strong and linear, right, a relationship between Arctic temperatures and severe winter weather in the eastern United States. Uh, when the Arctic is cold, um, we, um, we show that there's a decreased risk of severe winter weather, and this includes both cold and snow. And then um, when the Arctic gets warmer, that risk of severe winter weather increases and we um and, and when the arctic is warmest that's when the, there's a real spike in the probability or likelihood of severe winter weather and we were getting one of those signals i saw that signal a really a spike in arctic temperatures for mid-february and that's why i thought there was really um this was an area a time period to really highlight and focus on so um and you're showing this video so we, you know, we all know that the globe is getting warmer, but the globe is not, and this is what's key, the globe is not getting warmer uniformly, right? That warming is not uniform. It's, it's focused or uh, concentrated in the Arctic. The Arctic is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the globe. And I think most people are aware that this is leading to uh, rapid sea ice melt in the Arctic Ocean. So typically, um, we, the, the cold air in here, and you're showing this video, the cold is represented by these blue bubbles or dot, you know, uh, dots, and, and the warmer air is, um, is by the red dots. So normally, in the typical situation, we have the cold air over the Arctic and warm air at the mid-latitudes. Also in the Arctic, we have something that we refer to the polar vortex, and that was shown earlier by that spinning blue arrow. And in its typical state of the polar vortex, an area of low pressure, it sits right over the North Pole, and keeps the cold air close to it, as you see in the video right now, you know, over the Arctic region, you have warmer temperatures to the south along the mid-latitudes. But that Arctic warming is um, causing the jet stream to become more amplified. So when you have more amplified flow, you have warmer, you have a redistribution of the air masses or more mixing, more vigorous mixing. So you have warm air, uh, it starts out in the lower latitudes, then rushes into the Arctic region. Now, there are two layers of the atmosphere. There's the troposphere and the stratosphere. The polar vortex is in the stratosphere, which is the top layer. So that warm air rushes into the where the polar vortex is, and it displaces, because you know two, two objects can't occupy the same space, it displaces the cold air south to lower latitudes. And uh, so you have the polar vortex, an area of low pressure, typically sits over the North Pole. And then when you have this warm air rushing the Arctic, it displaces the polar vortex to Eurasia, to North America. And, and I like to say where the cold air goes, so I'm sorry, where the polar vortex goes, so goes the cold air. And that happens first in the stratosphere, but for reasons I don't think we fully understand, um, that then happens in the troposphere about two weeks later. And so when you have this displacement of cold air from the originally over the Arctic to lower latitudes and mid latitudes and this more amplified flow first in the stratosphere, then that happens in the troposphere where the weather occurs, where we live. Then that, that same thing happens in the cold air is displaced, um, you know, further south. And this is exactly, I would say, in my opinion, is exactly what we saw what happened with Texas. So we had this, um, the cold air, uh, the warm air, I'm sorry, rushed into the polar vortex. It displaced the cold air over the North Pole south. This happened first in the stratosphere, right, in, in January, but then about two weeks, at the end of January, early February. And then about two weeks later, this is, you know, occurs, is kind of mimicked or copied um, in, 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 in the troposphere with our weather. And that's when the cold air got dislodged from the, from the, near the North Pole in the Arctic 
and got dislodged and it headed straight south uh, to Texas. So tell me this, I know that you're not in public policy, you're a scientist, uh, but uh, you probably keep an eye who's listening to you. So in the United States of America, where this, you know, you talked about this phenomena, were there any states uh, who were paying uh, attention to this or they normally pay attention to what is what going to happen with climate change and adopt policies? I mean, Illinois, I can tell you in Chicago where I'm based, uh, about uh, six years ago, the, the tree city is planting and the sidewalk material they're using is the one which is used normally in Alabama because they think the whole thing is coming this way. So are there some states which actually are listening to scientists in terms of adopting policies which can help them uh, deal with the forthcoming scenarios? Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I'm less familiar with this. I, I mean, I know states are planning, uh, making plans, you know, for climate change, extreme weather. Um, you know, I graduated from Columbia University I know they, you know, Columbia jointly with NASA, there's a NASA office there, have been advising the New York City um, government, you know, municipality about climate change and extreme weather. I mean, I, so here we're Mass, I mean, I reside in Massachusetts. I mean, I spoke to the, you know, the governor, uh, Charlie Baker and, and his uh, cabinet, you know, about the polar vortex and extreme winter weather. And how much they've adopted, I don't know, but I certainly have spoken to them. Uh, and I think they've, you know, internalized uh, what, I, what I told them. Um, so those are just examples that I know of. I, I'm sure, I, I'm sure California is, uh, there's certainly lots of climate scientists in California and they've certainly experienced very extreme weather. You know, you talked about- oh, who's, uh, who's, tell me, who's keeping an eye on North Pole and Antarctica and what is happening there? Well, I mean, there you know there are scientists. Um, you know, there was actually um, a big uh, expedition recently to the Arctic called Mosaic. I think it was mostly a European, um, you know, venture. I think they're the ones that funded. It was mostly European scientists, uh, but people you know can Google search it, and there there was just this past year. So I mean, the, they gather a lot of information from the Arctic, and I'm, I'm sure they will. There'll be many studies coming out uh, from that research. Uh, you know, I, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, there are, so there are polar scientists and Antarctica has been behaving differently from the Arctic and it, um, you know, so, uh, the warming has been focused in the Arctic and has not been focused in Antarctica so much, you know, so why, why is that, um, you know, will that continue? So, I mean, they're, they're, it's, they're interesting. They're, you know, there's, you know, can make compare and contrast or, um, between the two. But I mean, there are lots of scientists. I mean, I you know, like most of my funding comes from the National Science Foundation. They fund lots of polar research, so both Arctic and Antarctic. Uh, you know, maybe people have seen. You know, they they manage some stations there in in the in the in the South Pole and uh, also in Greenland. But you know, there are plenty of you know U.S. and international scientists studying. There's a NOAA has this Arctic report card that that discusses changes in the Arctic and they use that to advise, um, you know, the U S government on, on Arctic changes and maybe the influence on our weather because of the Arctic changes. So, I mean, there's uh, certainly, um, you know, lots of, on, you know, ongoing. Are there more scholars uh, taking interest in this discipline? I think, you know, I mean, so I wrote a review paper on the, on how maybe changes in the Arctic are influencing our weather. I mean, very relevant to what happened with Texas, where I'm saying that, and you were showing the video, and I try to argue that, and this is a controversial topic, so let me, you know, preface with what I say next. But, I, you know, I wrote a review paper about these ideas, how um, changes in the Arctic, this rapid warming can lead to these um, increased episodes of severe winter weather, like we saw last week with, I mean, Chicago also had very severe winter weather. Uh, you guys were prepared for it, so it didn't make the news like Texas, but certainly was extreme weather. 
but <clears throat> I don't know whether we're prepared. We are used to. I think will be the problem. Well, yeah, okay, but you have your your infrastructure is winterized, and uh, but you know, I mean, Texas got all the storm. I mean, it was below zero in Chicago, and she had an extended period of very cold temperatures, and you also had a lot of snow. But um, I wrote a review paper in 2014. I'm getting kind of not to get sidetracked, but I, I wrote, and young scientists have come up to me and said, you know, thank you for your review paper. You know, this really sparked my interest in this topic. And, you know, I've decided to do research in this area. So I think there's an increasing interest among scientists, you know, climate scientists. And we are, uh, there's certainly been an explosion, I would say, uh, of, of papers, you know, scientifically peer-reviewed papers on this topic that, um, you know, over the past decade or so. And I think that and that would increase, obviously, what happened in Texas, <laughs> Um, you know, with, with the human toll that it took and, and the collapse of infrastructure. Um, I heard, I mean, that this will turn out to be Texas, a costliest natural disaster. Texas that is a state that's uh, more well known for its hurricanes and heat waves and drought uh, than snow and cold. Uh, but it will turn out, you know, um, that, you know, through a hit Texas history, uh, you know, certainly after this winter, uh, what happened last week will be its cost its natural disaster. So I do assume, I, I expect that uh, this will spark interest, you know, not just in the science, but maybe in the policy as well, policy side as well. But so this is a, this is a new area, uh, this area of how Arctic, how the Arctic or even Arctic change is influencing our weather, how, you know, might increase these uh, episodes of more extreme weather. You know, this is relatively new. I, um, I think I've been really really the, the person has been studying it the longest, but I would say this is a, an area that only really started about a decade ago. So, um, you know, even, so in climate science, this is a relatively new area and I expect it has been growing. There's been increased interest and I, I certainly expect that to continue. And what happened this year could only, uh, you know, help that happen or will, will increase you know, help to increase the, the interest and, and, and the research, scientific research. You're listening to our podcast, Mujahid Talk. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to our podcast. The terminology's use has global warming. And uh, some people, especially in conspiracy theories, don't believe in science type. They say, oh, well, what global warming? I'm freezing to death here. Now, you, you know, you're a scholar. You don't need to deal with those type of people. But do you think this all the conspiracy theories and the alternate media or the fake news, all of that is confusing people to really realize what they're facing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an unfortunate amount of confusion, maybe misinformation. Um, you know, I stay focused on the science. I mean, I, I, and I'm not the one who gives these names uh, uh, to, to, to these events. So, I mean, it started out global warming and then they kind of morphed into climate change. I, I mean, I certainly I'm one that, uh, that does argue there's more to, to, to what's happening than global warming, that it's more complicated. So, I mean, I do like the term, I prefer the term climate change because, and I, and, um, because first of all, when it, it's not, it's, I mean, when people thought to change the name uh, or maybe to use more often climate change, I mean, with it, the warming, I mean, we are expecting this, all the science, the models the scientists expect and the models predict there will be an increase in extreme weather. So we don't want to just say it's going to get warmer. Maybe if you're in Minnesota or in Chicago, we say, well, my winters are cold enough. You know, a little warming is good. But what well, we're trying to say that it's not, you know, climate change is not just about some warming temperatures. You know, there's, there's extreme events. Um, so the ones that every, there's a consensus on, there'll be more extreme heat, you know, more heat waves, um, more extreme flooding, more extreme drought. Now, where, the, where I myself might disagree with many of my colleagues. I also think that climate change can contribute, you know, not, it's a complicated picture, but can contribute to more, even more extreme winter weather. And I, and I, I say there's a, there's a connection between climate change and the extreme weather that Texas experienced 
global warming on north pole contributes uh, that you know to harsh winters i mean that seems to be not a very complex logic there right well so so most of the community will tell you know climate community i'm not the scientists will argue that there is no connection between a warming arctic and and uh more you know more a severe winter cold outbreak or a severe snowfall they'll tell you arctic warming only contributes to milder winters and less snowfall and i i've been trying to argue that there is a connection um and you know you showed my video before i'm because we we do know everybody agrees that you know try to describe the polar vortex and you can think of the polar vortex as a fast spinning top um it, that's the normal state and when a top is spinning rapidly it tends to be uh, you know quiet rotation and it tends to be sit in one place and that's similar with the polar vortex when it's spinning you know this air that spins around the polar vortex is an area of low pressure and winds blow around all low pressure you know counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere so you have this you know fast river ribbon of air fast you know rapidly circulating around the polar vortex and it tends to keep all the cold air near the arctic you know it just it keeps it close to the vest you know it's a very fast rotation um with, with the polar, uh, polar vortex and the cold air is kept um over the um over the arctic and it's milder to the south uh, uh however when you get just like a top when it bangs into something you bang on the top um it starts to wobble it starts to meander and uh similar with the polar vortex when when it when it gets banged on and i try to argue that banging comes from a warmer arctic it meanders and it goes towards asia europe or north america and so that's what happened last week right uh you know a simplification of it but the polar vortex i like to say where the polar vortex goes so goes the cold air and when the um polar vortex starts just like the top starts to wobble starts to meander it slows down and goes to let's say the united states it took with it uh the cold air you know that's typically over the arctic then goes towards um you know north america in this case deep into the united states and um uh you know brought with it uh the cold For air communication wild. purposes you think the term climate change or extreme climate change may be a better terminology than is sticking to global warming term yeah so yeah again i mean i'm not one who <laughs> decides what terms i mean i i do think there's more to global warming than just warming temperatures that we can should expect an increase in extreme weather uh so i i mean i i you know again i'm not the one who decides these terms but i do like who decides the terms if you well, don't I, I, that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah whether it's the scientific community or policy makers i you know i don't um, uh, okay i don't know but you know but I, but i do think there's more to climate change than just warming temperatures so i do like climate change and i do think even in my you know again my arguments are that climate change encapsulates even um and it's consistent with what we saw in texas now other other scientists will disagree with me so this is an area of debate uh um, thank you so much uh, thank you so much dr judah kohn for being with us at muslim network tv dr kohn is a mit climatologist and a director of uh, the director of seasonal forecasting at atmospheric and environmental research and he's arguing that global warming is connected the severe weather and it could be freezing like texas thank you so much we'll be right back after these messages messages to talk little more about texas why it grid fail why water pipes are bursting and more with another scholar thank you so much uh, dr kohn it was a pleasure thank you you're listening to our podcast mujahid talk we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to our podcast. The Texas grid actually collapsed um, because the nuclear power and the gas power and uh, uh, everything went offline. Why the power went offline? Because uh, you know 
everything like fossil fuel failed, um, especially the natural gas. They couldn't produce it and cannot promote to Texas. Uh, so, so electricity was not being produced and they, everything collapsed. Texas, the Lone Star State, was frozen to death. Why they could not see it when it was already predicted? To discuss that with us is a former state representative of a neighboring state, New Mexico, Abbas Akhil. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Imam Majid. Uh, Abbas Akhil is uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and from 2018 to 2020, he served as a state representative. During his term, he passed legislation to modernize New Mexico's electric grid. Well, I was checking temperature in Albuquerque. It is the same degree as in Chicago right now. So you seems to be facing uh, some of the cold weather as well. Um, yes, Imam Malik, we are facing cold weather, but you know the situation in New Mexico is we always have sunshine. Uh, we do have cold weather, freezing temperatures, but because of the way our state is situated. So this is very interesting because Texas, the narrative that is going around right now is that Texas wind turbines failed. And that's true to a certain extent. Uh, I'm an engineer. I worked on these issues for, gosh, almost 40 years. I worked in the utility companies and I'm very familiar with the turbines, wind turbines that Texas uses. So yes, part of the blame is definitely that the turbines did freeze. But mostly what you have to remember is Texas has got a fairly mixed fuel mix. They make a lot of electricity from natural gas. They make electricity from nuclear and of course, electricity from wind. Um, in case, just talking numbers, there's something like over 10,000 wind turbines in uh, Texas. So what I want to do is I want to use this graphic that you see on the screen uh, just to explain what goes, uh, goes it, on. It would be good if it could be enlarged a little bit uh, so we, people can actually see it. Okay. There you go. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, it's better. All right. So this uh, actually I took this snapshot uh, very early in the morning and what it shows is this is the supply and demand curve for the Texas grid of, of the Texas electric system. So the upper curve that you see is the supply. That is how much electricity is being generated right now. And the lower curve shows what the Texas operators expect will happen today is how much people will use the electricity. So this is a normal day when there's enough supply uh, and the demand is low. So let's go to the next graphic. And that is actually very key to show what happens. So if you expand that, if you can, otherwise we can use it as it is. So this is a very interesting graphic because this captures exactly what was happening in Texas when the uh, blackouts started. So if you look to the left of that curve, the green line is, of course, the demand, which is what electricity the people are using. And the upper red line, the orange line, is the supply situation of electricity in Texas. So as you can see, prior to the blackouts being more prevalent, the demand and the supply came very close to each other, which means the problems had already started. So early in the morning on February 16, the Texas situation in terms of electricity supply and demand, uh, we, we were already in, heading into problems. But then as you move to the right, where 12 o'clock in the afternoon, you see the demand shooting up and the supply completely falling off. So demands were shooting up because it is freezing. People want heaters to be running and everything. Exactly. Right? They were using heaters, they were using other appliances. So although the situation has improved, as it says, even today, demand is far higher than the supply. Uh, today, no. Uh, today, the supply is actually pretty good. Because if you go to the previous graphic, you will see 
that the supply is pretty low. It also says today's outlook. So I thought this is about today. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, it says today's outlook. I'm so sorry. Uh, this actually means that that is a snapshot of that day. Oh, so that the date day. underneath is important. So the date that shows at the bottom of the slide is February 23, which right. is today. And the previous graphic was the February 16th when the problems were happening. So this is this is about the Texas situation. But is the New Mexico power grid better than Texas power grid? Uh, because you passed this legislation uh, in the New Mexico state uh, to improve the power grid. So what improvement uh, did you make? Uh, did your law make in New Mexico? So. I would have to go to graphic number five if Sherdil can put that on the screen. And that really describes what, what is also the problem. So if you can bring that graphic on the screen, I can describe to you. No, no, the one after that. There you go. Okay. So New this is the map of the entire United States. And what you see there are three sections. And those sections are all electrically isolated. So New Mexico falls in the section to the left, and New Mexico is right at the bottom there, as you can see. And the eastern section is on the right. But as you can see down below, Texas is all by itself. Now, this was a choice that Texas made, uh, whether you call it pride or you know bad planning, but they decided to remain isolated for the last 40, 50 years and they do not have any connection to other states. So when New Mexico, the question you asked just now, if New Mexico has problems, we lean. In other words, we borrow electricity from our neighboring states. And that happens all over the western side of the United States. As well as, as the eastern side of it. And the eastern side, right? New Mexico is on the eastern side. Texas has no such parachute. So if they have problems, they are on their own. And I worked at Sandia National Labs. And after 9-11, we used to do scenarios just like this to say, what can happen to the grid? What can happen to the electric grid if bad things happen? Now, as I said earlier, Texas also has nuclear power plants. And these are pretty huge. So if you lose a nuclear power plant, you can pretty much lose the system if you are not connected to the other grids. So as New Mexico and the rest of the country shares their power and their electricity, Texas cannot. So if there's a major failure, whether you point the finger at wind turbines, a nuclear power plant, or the fact that gas lines, natural gas lines froze, Texas is on its own. And this we knew would happen. This has been studied, this has been stated before, but unfortunately, the way the Texas grid is now, they cannot now create a connection with the other grids of the country. That is a very expensive proposition. So basically, they are on their own right now. Oh, even if they decide uh, that, okay, we want to connect, it's not an easy thing to do? It's not. In fact, two of those connections are in New Mexico. And they were built about 40 years ago when I worked in the public service company of New Mexico. And they can only transfer 300 megawatts. Now, to give you an idea, one megawatt is only 200 homes. So 300 hmm. megawatts is hardly you know, 60,000 homes. So wow. there's nothing. So if Texas want to integrate with the rest of the country, uh, it will have to, it seems, invest uh, hundreds of billions of dollars then. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's almost impossible. Now, there's another way of doing it. And there was an opportunity to do that, right? The reason Texas is not connected to the other grids is because what we call in electrical engineering, a problem of phase angle. So all these three sections of the country that I showed you all operate on a different phase angle. So if I want to connect the Eastern to the Western side, I have to shut down every generator that's making electricity on the Western side and resynchronize it with the eastern side. Then I can connect. My goodness. That's so it's just not possible. Hmm. So even if they invest enough in power lines and uh, 
you know, building towers and all that, everybody need to shut down essentially before it could be connected. So on February 16, when they were going through a blackout, maybe they should have completely shut the system down and resynchronized either to the east or the west. But even that is a technical uh, problem. Okay, so so there is no immediate solution. So it yeah. means they will have to build redundancy within Texas. That may be easier. Yeah, and, and really what they need to do, and this is definitely something that needs to be pointed out in all fairness. Now, when a failure like this happens, there will be studies. This will be analyzed in great detail for literally months to come. It is almost like flying a jet plane. God forbid if an airliner crashes, we go and retrieve the black box. This is exactly what's going to happen in Texas. We will go in. Right now, there are 680 generators in Texas. That means there are 680 machines making electricity that feeds the Texas customers. We are going to go in and look at each one of those that failed and look at what was happening a few hours before and during the failure and the events that happened. There may be mechanical uh, issues, of course, which we will identify, or they might be human error. So this may be a good time, Abbas uh, um, uh, for us to understand who, where the electricity is produced and what is the grid system. Everybody is talking a grid, grid, and of course, you know, I think just the pole and the lines over there. But what is that grid system and how you mentioned about 600 um, parties who produce electricity there. Yes. And then it, before it reaches our home. So how does all of that happen? So all that happens is, so Texas is a deregulated grid. Uh, and I'm using some technical terms here. Basically, it's like the New York Stock Exchange. You're buying and selling stock. So each of the 680 machines that are making electricity in Texas, by the hour, they're bidding into a market, which is what ERCOT stands for. You keep hearing this word ERCOT, ERCOT. So what is ERCOT? ERCOT is like the New York Stock Exchange of the electric grid in Texas. ERCOT stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Their job is to pick the lowest cost generator and uh, make it connected to the system, let it supply the electricity. When the capacity increases, they go to the next higher cost, then the next higher cost. So that is how the cost for the day are fixed. And they dispatch these machines based on the cost. Oh, so you mean the next lower cost? So they buy yes. the cheapest and the cheaper, then the cheaper and the cheaper? No, actually it goes the opposite way because the cheaper goes in first, then the next okay. higher price. Okay. Then so one would as the high. demand increases, you pick more and more expensive okay. machines. Yes, yes. Price. Yeah, so it's the opposite. Okay. So, 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 where the failure came? So the failure came. There are two really interesting reasons here. Because Texas is a deregulated market, every one of those 680 machines wants to generate at the lowest possible price, which means I'm going to reduce my maintenance and my manpower to the least possible that I can exist with. So. I'm going to be the lowest cost generator because if I don't get into the system that day, I don't make any money. So if I don't have the lowest cost of electricity as compared to the 600 and uh, what is 79, 679 generators, my generator will not go on the system that day and I lose money. So what has happened in Texas, and this is going to come out from the studies, is as time went on, they really did not winterize their system. And that goes for both wind turbines as well as combustion turbines and the nuclear power plants. In order to save money, Texas did not winterize their systems, which means when a deep freeze like this came most unexpectedly, these systems could not perform. So the very logical question is, wind turbines are used even in the Antarctica. Wind turbines are used in Alaska. They are used all over the Northern Europe, which in Canada, Canada sees temperatures of minus 20 degrees. Why don't the wind turbines freeze there? So the problem was Texas never really prepared for this. Just like in your car, 
there's a heating system that goes within the wind turbine. It can be installed so that the oil does not freeze when the temperature is very low. The Texans did not anticipate this. So none of the wind turbines, which are about now eight, 10 years old, in fact, at that time, there wasn't even much of an understanding. So most of the 10,000 wind turbines will have to be upgraded with heating packages. These are retrofits. And these are costs that the Texans will have to bear in order to keep their wind turbines. So essentially what you're pointing out is a mix of uh, imagination on the side of policymaker along with the uh, the the uh, free market uh, weirdness uh, that it will be on the dime every minute price is changing and things like that a mix of those two cause the whole disaster absolutely right i think this is where when we study the situation in detail that's where it will come out because one thing we have to realize you know the electric grid is a very large machine in the country and the people who operate it are very diligent. They are well-trained. So the way the electric network is designed, when bad things like this happen, it is actually designed to protect itself. And that happens automatically. It happens in seconds, literally six seconds, eight seconds. You will have, you know, you'll see a light blinking in your home sometime, which means something bad has happened, but the system is taking corrective measures to make sure that your lights stay on. But when things really go bad, then the operator's training comes into play. Just like a pilot flying the plane. When both engines have failed, it's the skill of the pilot. So the operators that are running ERCOT are very well trained. I don't think it was their fault. But when they saw these massive failures and the demand was exceeding far more than the supply they had, they really were taking very evasive measures to try and save as much as they could. But it's only possible so much. Hmm. But as we saw in that curve, when the demand goes up that high and the supply is not there, there's nothing you can do. Basically, you're looking for a place to land very quickly. Hmm. You know, you, you were a state legislator and uh, <clears throat> in New Mexico uh, until a couple of months ago. Um, how much importance is given by uh, state legislators to the uh, climate change variables? So do they discuss climate change and because of that, we need to do this, this and that? Is, is it a part of discussion? It's a very interesting question you have asked. So actually, this legislative session, which started in February of this year, I mean, middle of February, one of my fellow ex-legislators, Melanie Stansbury, she has introduced a bill which is targeting especially climate change and how it is going to affect our state government in New Mexico only, just state legislature. And she's asking each agency of the government to prepare a plan to how they will address climate change. Yes, we are very progressive. We may be a poor state, as most people think we are the poor cousins of Texas, but we are very progressive in this manner. So even the grid modernization bill that I passed last year looks exactly like these things. What is it that we need to do to catch up with new technologies and make our grid a very modern grid? Because we have rural communities. New Mexico has got a lot of rural communities that are remote, that are end of you know lines, electricity lines. They could suffer exactly what Texas suffered. Possibly. And that's what we are preparing for. I know New Mexico is controlled by Democrats, governors and both houses. Uh, but there are some Republicans. Uh, how is your, conversa your conversation with Republicans? Are they skeptic of climate change? Are they go along? Are they uh, try to block measures of those nature? Unfortunately, Yes. In fact, both the Senate and the House is controlled by Democrats, as you just said, and the governor is, a, is also a Democrat. But the Republican Party, unfortunately, is very deeply embedded to the fossil fuel industry. And they push back. They definitely push back. on, And that is happening even in Texas. The governor, the first thing he said in Texas was, 
oh, the renewables failed us. And even now in USA Today, there is an article just, I think, yesterday, which said that the Biden plan to take us to renewables is dangerous and it will create more problems like we saw in Texas. That's not true at all. And that conversation happens all the time. And what I have done to reassure my Republican colleagues, and they sometimes do work with us, is to tell them that electricity really has nothing to do with oil. Electricity that we generate pretty much all over the country has only to do with natural gas. And New Mexico, almost one third of our revenue comes from oil and natural gas production. Uh, our state budget is about 8 billion, and we have basically uh, oil and gas providing one third of that revenue. And we want to make, I always make a point to say that oil has nothing to do with electricity generation. So if we go renewables in New Mexico, it will not hurt oil production at all. Because oil that we use in New Mexico and the oil, our oil that is exported goes for transportation. So really, electricity has nothing to do with oil. Yes, it has to do with natural gas. And what we have, in fact, we are one of the few states in the country which has laid a goal of making 2045 carbon free for the entire state. And in that picture, there is natural gas. We will be using natural gas for the next 10 years or so for part of our electricity generation, along with the renewables. So, well, I, I know your answer may be partisan because you're a Democrat, uh, but uh, do, do, do you think um, this failure in the policy is going to continue to hamper how Texas deals with this uh, disaster? That's hard to say. I, I don't know how the politics in Texas will play out, but I hope that this example of Texas is not amplified to a point where it affects our desire to wean away from uh, fossil fuels. I'm sure it won't happen in uh, New Mexico. I think we will stay on a path to develop our renewable technologies as much as we can, because we've got the potential of producing four times more than the energy we use in the state from renewables. And we will do that. Uh, we are headed in that direction. It's the right direction. But I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant because if you hear the questions that were asked from uh, ex-Congresswoman Deb Holland this morning in the Senate Energy Committee, where she's going through a confirmation hearings, those questions are very pointed. They are trying to drive home the point. They being the Republican senators are trying to drive home the point that, look, our renewable energy plans, as laid out by President Biden, are going to be dangerous for the country. And this is partisan thinking. You know, if I, I wish I had, I could show you pictures of how coal is mined and burned and the effect that it has had on New Mexico, on our water, on our air, on our land. We've produced electricity from coal for the last 70 years. And the devastation that it causes to the environment is extreme. I mean, you could see from the power plant in New Mexico, the smoke that comes out of the stack, you could see it from the International Space Station. And that is just one power plant in New Mexico. Hmm. So if you look across the country, all the coal that is being burned, it's time to move on. This technology is 150 years old. I mean, New Mexico is connected with the uh, with the grid of uh, you know outside the state, and if you have energy problem, you can import energy yes. uh, seamlessly from other places. But then, what was the need to uh, that law which you passed? Uh, you led the effort uh, to upgrade the grid system. What was the upgrade which was uh, involved in there? Just so this is actually a very interesting question you asked, because the grid, as we know it, or what we call the grid, the electric network, is really pretty, I mean, it works well. I should 
absolutely say it works very well. It's the largest machine we have built, and yet it is controlled precisely to give you the exact voltage and frequency that you need to run your refrigerator, your air conditioning, your lights, and even this laptop. So it's an amazing machine, and it's doing a really good job. But each state decides how that machine runs in their state. And some states are progressive, like California. In fact, right now, if you were in California, you could go on an app on your iPhone and see exactly how much energy you have consumed in your home two hours ago. And that is a good example of a grid that is relatively modern. In fact, I would say quite modern. Because then what is happening is the people who are running the grid, just like in Texas, the operators that I talked about, can see exactly what is happening all the way to your home. And when problems arise, they can take preventive actions to either make sure that you have supply to your home or to disconnect your home so that that problem doesn't propagate. In New Mexico, we are not that far ahead as California is. So right now, the way our system operator operates our system is they can only see as far as the substation, the electric substation you have in your neighborhood. They cannot see my home. So if there's an outage in my neighborhood, they don't know there's an outage until I and my neighbors start calling the electric company to say, look, I've lost my power. Then the operator says, oh, yeah, that substation is where the problem is. But the substation protects itself. Hmm. But where I'm going with this is when you have that kind of control where each customer can see what it is doing, and what their home is consuming, then it gives you greater choice. You can decide how you use your electricity, whether you should run the washer in the morning or at night, whether you want to turn your air conditioning down a little bit. It works both ways. It saves you money and it saves the grid operator cost because they don't have to run the machines as much and spend that fuel. Okay, so that's the upgrade. Well, thank you so much, Basakil uh, Saab, for your time. Truly appreciate that. Uh, we were talking with Basakil Saab from the Albuquerque, Mexico, who was until recently state representative in New Mexico. And thank you, Sherdil and Dr. Abdul Wahid, for producing today's show. Peace and salam. Thank you, Imam Malik. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. You can always watch our live show on Muslim Network TV, which is 24-7 on Galaxy 19 satellite, which has 57 million subscribers. Our OTT devices like Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Raku. And of course, you can download our app on Android or iPhone or watch it on YouTube or Facebook. Just type Muslim Network TV. And to learn more about us and past shows, come to our website, muslimnetwork.tv. Peace. Salam.